Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation about police and law enforcement with Randy Peterson. He's a senior researcher at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And if you haven't heard that part one, we highly recommend that you listen to that one first. It's the episode immediately before this one, and it provides a lot of context for this part two. Coming up, we pick up right where we left off with our discussion about body cameras, what they can potentially leave out, the importance of not resisting arrest, and the impact of the Ferguson effect. We hope you enjoy this episode. We now return to our conversation. Difficult to wrap their heads around. Yeah, you know, I've come around on body cams on police officers. Initially, I was hesitant. And the reason I was hesitant is because I don't think that the body cameras give the entire story. So just like you were talking about, so that sort of, uh, you know, the objectively reasonable standard, what's going through the officer's minds. And so, I, you know, I work in production. And so I know that uh, cameras don't see the same thing that human eyes see. And I know that microphones don't hear the same things that human ears hear. It's different ranges. There's also sensory input to assist that. And when you when you simply look at a body cam or you look at someone's cell phone cam, you're not getting the entire story. You're not experiencing this through the officer's point of view. And so I'm going to talk about the Atlanta. There was a Rayshard Brooks at the uh, the Atlanta Wendy's who was shot during the course of an arrest. He, of course, resisted and was able to get one of the officer's tasers and shot it at him. But the thing that people don't see, they don't feel the officer tussling with this suspect. You don't know if the person's seeing stars. You don't know how disoriented they are. And they're still in the course of doing their duty. And so it's as fast as they can possibly process it. So can I kick that back to you for some commentary there, body cameras and perceptions? Yeah, and that's a great point. And I think that there is some value, as you pointed out, to the, the body cameras and Correct. to the recordings because um, you know it does document what occurred. But there is a huge gap there, as you very correctly pointed out. It's, it's that human factor. Not only do the recordings and the visuals look different on video as to what the human eye and human ear picked up, but our perceptions of those are also different. And that's a great example that you don't know the camera and the recording does not record what was going on with the officer. And that, and that was a, a perfect example of that, right? Was, was the officer disoriented? Did the officer feel that he could no longer defend his, his tools or his firearm if re-engaged? You know, he had already had his, his taser taken. So there's a lot of factors going on there that the, the camera really can't explain. And I think that an over-reliance on it just like having it not at all is is probably not favorable because it does provide us with a whole bunch of information, but it has to be part of the overall comprehensive investigation and explanation of the situation. We can't rely completely and only on that. They give a very one-dimensional view of what's going on. You really only see what's directly in front of the camera. Not You're not taking in the whole environment as the, the officer on the scene was. Resisting arrest. And so I, obviously this has been part of what's been going on with a lot of these these more, I guess, controversial, if you want to say that, controversial uses of force. And so it seems to be a common element amongst a lot of these where you know a suspect is being arrested and then decides to resist arrest. And that triggers off a bunch of responses and unfortunately can result in uh, you know death or injury. And so what I'd like to do, Randy, is talk about arrests. And so by the time an officer gets around to making an arrest, 
arrest, a lot of things have occurred. You know, the officer has either seen the crime or heard about it from a witness or has a warrant out. But there's a lot of process and procedure in play. I mean, this is executing on the law as uh, as implemented by the community. The officer is doing their job and they've got a lot of processes and procedures. But there's also a lot of considerations. The officer has a wide variety of duties during the course of an arrest, not just for the safety of the suspect, but people around them and their own personal safety as well. And so I was wondering, can you walk us through what an officer is dealing with during the course of an arrest and then maybe get into why it's very important not to resist arrest, whether you did the crime or not? Sure. An officer's acting within the bounds of the law whenever they have probable cause to make an arrest if they do decide to make an arrest. And you pointed out that in a lot of situations, they do have some discretionary variables that they can maybe make an arrest, maybe not, maybe issue just a citation, all of those things. So they're considering all of those things. Now, some of these are not optional, right? There are some shall arrest situations. Uh, In Illinois, where I was at um, domestic battery, if there was probable cause to believe a domestic battery had occurred or a violation of an order of protection, the officer had to make the arrest, right? They would, they could face prosecution if they didn't do that. So once an officer has decided to make an arrest, that arrest is going to happen. And I think that the public needs to understand that once an officer tells you you're under arrest, it no longer matters if you agree with the arrest, if you think you did it, didn't do it. If in fact you didn't do it, Right? Even if the arrest, even if you're found not guilty later and the arrest was even unlawful, you still do not have a right to resist that arrest because that's a whole separate charge. You can be found not guilty of the reason that you were being arrested and still be found guilty of resisting that same arrest. And the problem with that is that's not the place for you to decide that you are going to what you think is exercise your rights, right? You don't have a right to resist arrest. The time and place to address what you feel is an injustice is in court. It's later. It's filing a complaint at the police department, filing a lawsuit, all of these different things. That will ensure that both you and the officer continue down that path. When you resist arrest, police officers do not have any duty to retreat, right? They don't have to stop trying to make the arrest because of perceived or actual resistance. They're not just going to lose interest. I guess that would be the, the, the biggest thing that I would tell the public is your resistance is not going to defeat the arrest. It may for a short period of time, but eventually you, you will come face to face with more law enforcement. And it is not going to change the officer's mind in any way. In fact, you have now hardened his or her resolve. They will arrest you. They're not going to just lose interest and say, okay, we'll forget this ever happened. There's a time and place when you can address if you legitimately think, and if in fact your rights were violated, but it is not by resisting. Yeah. And I want to get into what's going through an officer's mind when a suspect suddenly resists arrest, but I want to coax that into the next question I have. And so, you know, whether you did the crime or not, you're innocent, maybe somebody just mistaken, mistaken identity, you get arrested, Uh, whether you did the crime or not, you know, what can a member of the public do? They find themselves under arrest. What can they do to work with the officer to ensure safety for everyone? Really, the the best thing to do is just to comply with the officer's commands, right? Once they tell you you're under arrest, turn around, put your hands behind your back or get down on your knees or put your hands above your head. This is what the officers are doing in order to protect themselves, but it's also going to protect you if you comply with it. You know, following the the officer's orders completely, uh, not demonstrating any sort of noncompliance or threatening motions, most certainly do not reach quickly for anything, 
you don't want to give the officers any reason to believe that you're a threat. You know, I, I think a lot of people say, well, I'm not, you know, I don't have to do that. I don't have, well, you, you, you don't do that at your own risk then. You know, like, like I said, the, the officer is, is once they know that you're, they're going to place you under arrest, their senses are heightened because they're concerned that there could now be resistance, right? Or an attack or something like that. So they are acting in accordance with that. And anything you do to make that worse is only going to heighten the risk of a, of a violent encounter. Yeah. And it's okay to ask for instructions if you're a little confused. I mean, so, and I think this would happen if someone's law abiding, they have no reason to suspect that they would be arrested. It's a surprise shock and they're probably scared. It's okay to ask the officer for instructions, correct? Oh, absolutely. What do you want me to do would be, I mean, that's a, that's a, as, as telling of a compliance uh, uh, method as you could possibly do asking for instruction. If the officer's not saying, if they just say you're under arrest, you know, which normally they will give you some instruction, say, you know, but you could ask. And like that instance that you said with the Rottweiler, right? If you tell the officer, can I secure my dog, right? If you tell them what you're doing instead of just starting to do it or asking permission to do it first, right? Just like on a traffic stop and you say, can I see your, your insurance? And you say, it's in my glove box. Is it okay if I, if I grab it, you know? And if you have a, a, a lawfully carried firearm in there, let the officer know that it's in my glove box, but my firearm is in there. Right. You know, that, that's, that's right. That's smart. <laughs> that's yeah. smart. I know that, that's, I'm sure that happens quite a bit out of the state of Texas. Right. Right. <laughs> so I want to talk about the Ferguson effect. And uh, so obviously uh, the Ferguson effect happened after the Michael Brown arrest altercation, which turned into unfortunately a lethal use of force. But uh, you know that's had impact on police officers across the country in the performance of their duty. So I'm wondering, Randy, if you could explain what the Ferguson effect is and how it impacts officers while they're going about doing their job. Yes. So the Ferguson effect is the idea that some police officers, probably a lot of police officers have begun to basically what we would call de-police that because of, you know, they, they saw the effects that that had on that, on the police officer involved in that, right? What was, was a, a justified shooting and how his career and his life was thrown into turmoil, not just by the community, actually really not by the community, it was by the media and by politicians that created this. And that that's the more concerning part for police officers. They can work to repair their relationships with the community, but when they have a, a, a media pounding on their heads and politicians looking to, to make a name for them themselves, they feel completely unsupported. So they revert to only responding to what they have to, right? There's no more proactive policing, they see no reason to risk themselves and being the next viral video in going after proactive arrests. So you, you see crime rates change in cities where this happens. I think, you know, New York, I just explained, is, um, is seeing that. Chicago is seeing that. As police officers start to de-police because they are in fear of being attacked simply for doing their job, not for misconduct, right? No officer expects to get away with misconduct, but when they're simply doing their job and doing it correctly, and they're going to be you know, thrown under the proverbial bus for that, they begin to do less and less. And then you see a corresponding rise in crime rates. 
Well, my last question for you, Randy, has to do with the uh, morale of the police. And I would imagine right now, if you're a police officer, you know, serving in that blue uniform, it's got to be hard right now seeing a lot of these media accounts and watching some of these protests and riots. And, you know, you're out there doing your your job and it's not it's not a safe job all the time. In fact, there's a lot of risk with being a police officer. They, they run into danger while the rest of us uh, run away from danger. And so, you know, because you formerly served as a police officer, I think your hands can be pretty close to the pulse of this. You know, how is the morale in your opinion across the country with police officers in the different states, precinct to precinct? You know, I, I think it, that probably varies, but I think overall it, the climate of this summer has uh, hurt morale, you know, across the board, but particularly in places like, you know, Seattle and Minneapolis and Portland, where they're not just facing the protests of those looking for justice, but a barrage of criminal activity and then the complete lack of backing by their leaders, right? By their their city councils and mayors and things like that, basically demonizing them and a lot of times kind of tying their hands as to the enforcement. I can't imagine how demoralizing that must be in those particular locations. But I did uh, recently, I asked a class of recruits, you know, are you sure you want to do this? You know, why are you getting into this now? And to a person, they said, now is probably the time when the profession needs really good people. And I, and I want to be part of that. So that, that was inspiring. So as much as morale has probably been hurt, there's new giants ready to take their place and re- ready to step up to the call. Well, that, that's, a, that's a good way to close the show, Randy, on a positive note. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was great having you. Thank you, Lawrence. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. Helps the show and we always love hearing from you. And as always, we are going to make our sources for this episode available on our website in the show notes area at LegalTalkNetwork.com. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 